Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hey, Maria. Hey, Shelly. How are you? I'm good. Are you ready for our two days of fall before winter comes? Two days? Oh, come on. I think we can get at least two weeks. I doubt it. I feel like it was really hot and then it was really rainy and now it's fall. I loved today's weather. It was perfect. I mean, I didn't get to enjoy most of it, but I did probably get to enjoy about 15 minutes of it this afternoon in my garden where I just sat outside in the sun and it was glorious. That does sound glorious. By the time I got home, it was already dark. So oh, no, <laughs> I couldn't hang out with the chickens in the yard. Do nothing that I usually do. How are the chickens doing? They're good, except for we have two roosters. Well, that's right. You told me. Are they mm-hmm. starting to make more noise? They're starting to crow. Oh, no. And their little spurs are starting to come in. So I know that they're roosters for sure. Yeah. Say goodbye, boys. I know. <laughs> No men allowed. Single ladies yeah, only. <laughs> only. The comment. No men allowed. So this week we're going to be talking with Meryl Estabrook all about avoiding the cascade of interventions when you are in labor. It's an important topic. It's a very important topic. You need more people like that. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about the study I was reading about. The t-shirt study. Have you ever heard of it? I have heard of it, as a matter of fact. Um, it has something to do with the birthing parent's smell and bonding with the baby. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what they did was they took um, about 50 babies and held them face-to-face with their moms while measuring their brain waves. And they found that the, brain waves be- the, ba- the baby's brain waves and the mom's brain waves would synchronize. Then they took those same babies and put them face-to-face with a stranger and measured their brain waves. And their brain waves did not synchronize until they put a t-shirt that smelled like the mom nearby. And then the baby's brain waves synchronized with the strangers. That's fascinating that, that the smell just needs to be nearby. Mm-hmm. And it's also fascinating that they have to be face-to-face with a stranger, right? Or they have to have like a face-to-face connection. Mm-hmm. Like, think of it like maybe the parent is standing behind those two, the mom. And so that would be how the baby smells them, but they're still connecting with the stranger. That's kind of yeah. wild. Yeah, I think we underestimate the importance of like eye to eye contact and facial expressions when it comes to baby's development. Right. Yeah. yeah. But this can, you know, this can be useful. And I'm sure you heard like advice you know, to help your child sleep longer, give them a shirt that smells like you at night and stuff like that. Like, yeah. Or that's a, to be more settled or soothed. Yeah. 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 Like there is one family I was working with, the baby would only take the bottle from the mom. And so we just wrapped the shirt that smelled like mom around the bottle. And then the baby took it from whoever. <laughs> <laughs> Very particular eating habits. Yeah. And I can, like mom, I will not eat it. <laughs> yeah so I guess that can come in handy like when you're 
you put your baby in daycare, maybe sending along something that smells like you to help them with the transition. Absolutely. Especially for nap times. Nap times at daycare can be really difficult for babies. I don't know how the daycare providers do it. Did Morgan have a lovey? Um, no, not really. She never had like a one particular thing uh, until she got older. Now she has a very tiny, like not very tiny. It's like a beanie baby kitty that mm-hmm. I found, I think, at a secondhand store one year for Christmas. And it is her absolute favorite stuffy. If anything happens to this beanie baby, I, she might perish from despair. But she loves it that intensely. <laughs> you have backups, right? <laughs> I feel like I need to buy some or find some, but I found it in a secondhand store. <laughs> oh no, that's the worst. Yeah, it was like the most inconsequential thing mm-hmm. that I was buying at the time. I was like, oh, it's a cute, you know, beanie baby cat. She'll love that. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I was right. <laughs> this is kind of gross, but when Brooke was a baby, she would like because you know how you take your breast pad out when you're breastfeeding yeah. and sometimes I forget to put it back in she'd find it like on the, the side yeah. and she'd walk around with it pressed up against her nose because oh, it smelled God. like milk yeah it smelled like milk oh my goodness and that was that was like becoming her lovey and I was like listen I have to stop this because I cannot have her like carrying around right. like, her breast pad yeah. nope sorry so I gave her a t-shirt that I slept in I used to just sleep in like a white cotton t-shirt so it smelled like me and that became her lovey but then like she took it everywhere for like years, the same shirt. Like we try to replace it and it, no, no, it was not happening. She's like, I don't know what this is, but it ain't it. You're going to give me my original shirt. I mean, it was, it was so dirty and we washed it regularly, but it was torn up almost black. Yeah. Oh, yeah. gross. Yeah. I had a I had a blanket like that as a baby and on into my toddler years. Uh, that was my love. It was a blanket that my grandmother had made for me when I was born. She did it for all the kids. She made all the kids blanket, baby blankets. She even the grandkids. And Morgan has one. But I loved that thing so hard. I loved it to literal <laughs> shreds, to tatters of a worn little blanket. It was so sad in the end. And I do believe my mother kept it somewhere and has it like air sealed. Probably if it touches air, it would just kind of disintegrate into ash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would just go. You oh <laughs> <laughs> were weird as kids. Well, it was babies. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> I guess we should go on to our question of the week. Yay. Question of the week. My 11-week-old breastfeeds every two hours. When I return to work, can I pump every three hours or do I have to pump every two hours because that's how often she feeds? Yeah, I mean, I, I think every three hours at work is fine. Yeah. Because usually, like, babies will sort of compensate a little bit. When moms get home from work, they tend to want to breastfeed a little bit more because they've had that separation and it can just be, like, their way of, Oh, thank goodness you came back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. And just because of baby's feeding every two hours doesn't mean they're taking in a full feeding. Right. Because 
breastfeeding is so much more than food for them. It's love and comfort and safety. So sometimes they're going on the breast every two hours just because they're not necessarily that hungry yet, but maybe they're tired or they're overstimulated or they just want to touch base with you, check in with you. Or thirsty. Yeah. Or bored. Or bored. It's pretty much solves every problem. So let's just, or anything. Yes. Boobs solve all, solve all problems. Boobs are the answer to world peace. Yeah. <laughs> I need to make that a bumper sticker. <laughs> I was just thinking I need to put that on a t-shirt. Hmm. <laughs> So that was a good question. And if you have a question that you want us to answer, then you can submit them on Instagram at Shelly Tech IBCLC. And next up, we will be speaking with Meryl. This week, we are talking with Meryl Esterbrook all about the cascade of interventions that can happen during labor and delivery. Meryl is a doula and a student midwife. She lives in Connecticut with her two kids. Meryl delivered three full-term babies of her own, two in a hospital setting and one at home. Her experience has given her a unique perspective on women's physical and emotional needs during pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. She's constantly expanding her knowledge of labor and birth through workshops, seminars, and hands-on training on top of several years attending births as a doula or home birth midwife. She is able to bring what she's learned from her own experiences and her continuing education in the birth work to the families that she supports through labor and delivery. She's also passionate about providing individualized trauma-informed preparation and care to each and every family she supports. Hey, Meryl, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me, Shelly. I'm so excited. This is such an important conversation to have because, you know, you work with women in the birth arena. And I used to as a doula, and now I do mostly um, postpartum support. But uh, the cascade of interventions is something that used to come up quite a lot when I was working with doula clients. Um, and so it's good that we're talking about it. But can you start by telling us about yourself? Yeah, definitely. You know, we could easily spend an entire podcast episode talking about my journey into birth work and birth advocacy. But briefly, um, I've delivered three babies of my own. Uh, the first two were hospital births. One was an induction. I had epidurals with both of them. I didn't know what a doula was at that time. I didn't know about how many choices I had about my own care, prenatally and in labor. And I absolutely thought that people who had planned home births were completely insane. <laughs> so fast forward between the birth of my number two and number three, I learned a ton about the resources that exist for birthing families like doulas, lactation consultants, childbirth classes, and even home birth midwives. <laughs> so by the time I was pregnant with my third child, I decided to have a planned home birth. And it was really through that experience and what was truly just gold standard care, um, prenatally for birth and postpartum, I realized that every family deserves to know that care like that exists. You know, not necessarily that everybody should have a home birth because obviously that's not right for everyone. It's not even right for most people, um, but that everyone should have access to the level of support and compassion and informed choice and just the individualized experience that I had. And I decided that as a doula, I could bring at least a degree of this information and empowerment to the families that I work with, no matter where they plan to birth. 
I love that. And I had a very similar story where I had my first in the hospital and was not treated very nicely and then had home births after. And that is how I got involved in birth work. And I think that's kind of how most people in our service are, who provide the services we provide, we just kind of like fall into it based on our own experiences. I don't know like any kids running around saying, I want to be a doula when I grow up, or I want to be a lactation <laughs> consultant when I grow up. It's just something that we kind of discover through our own struggles. And unfortunately, we need that support because it's not built into our society. It's not built into our culture like it is with other cultures. Yay, US. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's 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 also a whole separate podcast. You know, all the things that are wrong with the way yes. the, the system is set up here. It's yeah, it's definitely not easy. And so for those who might not be aware who are listening, what is the cascade of interventions? Like, what does that phrase refer to? So it's, it refers to, if you think about just a row of dominoes and the first domino that you knock over usually knocks over most of the rest of them, you know, unless something stops it (laughs) and labor and birth can progress in a very similar fashion if certain choices are made. So the most common way that this cascade begins is with induction of labor because right off the bat, you have to do something, you have to intervene in order to get this process going. And just one leads to another. So, you know, typically a typical cascade, you know, for the purposes of our conversation would be, you know, an induction that involves Pitocin, which Mm -hmm. then necessitates an epidural or some kind of pain relief, an epidural, which then really limits you in how much you can move and you're letting gravity assist with you know, your baby's descent and your birth. And also the effect that an epidural has on your, on your body. Um, it causes blood pressure fluctuations, which can then, you know, translate to your baby becoming unhappy, you know, with, you know, with how things are going and all of those things, if left unchecked, <laughs> a lot of times a cesarean birth ends up being the result. Um, so that's, just briefly, that's just sort of how the cascade works. Just one thing leads to another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, like if you get an intervention like the Pitocin or an epidural, that's going to lead to other invent- interventions because of the side effects. Yeah. Yeah. And, and before we go any further, you know, I, I want to say, I just, I just want to say that, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to be mostly referring to people who are low risk birthing people. You know, people who don't have medical complications that necessitate these medical interventions, because obviously that happens. And obviously every single one of the interventions that I just mentioned definitely has its place. And sometimes, you know, the benefits of of intervening or doing something outweigh, you know, the possible downfalls to doing it. So there are always exceptions to everything. Obviously, there's always going to be times and situations that necessitate these different tools. Right. And so in my mind, it's not so much the interventions that are the issue. It's the overuse or inappropriate use exactly of these interventions that can be the issue. Because I mean, I am very, very grateful that I live in a place where we have access to epidurals and to vacuum extractions and C-sections and all that because they save lives when they're used appropriately. The problem is, is in the U.S., we use them we way overuse them, especially mm-hmm. if you're looking at, you know, what other countries are doing. 
statistics in other countries where they have better outcomes. Right. What you said is almost exactly word for word what I say to my clients. I am so glad that we live as close to Boston as we live and that we are so close to just, you know, state of the art leaders in medical care and medical facilities, because when you need those things, you really need them and they absolutely do save lives. But obviously they're being overused. The United States among developed countries is absolutely abysmal as far as maternal and infant mortality goes and birth outcomes in general. And there's obviously a reason for that. And it's not as straightforward as, you know, saying, you know, A plus B equals C, you know, this is why the rates are, it's very, it's a very complex and nuanced, you know, there's a lot of factors here, but the overuse of interventions is absolutely a factor, mm-hmm. you know, in the, the outcomes that we're seeing, unfortunately. So, and this, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot with this, with this question, but do you know off the top of your head, like, can you give us some statistics that give an example of how the U.S. is overusing these interventions? So according to the World Health Organization, you know, which different people put different amounts of faith in the, in the World Health Organization, but um, they, their sort of goal, I guess, their, their mark for cesareans for any given hospital, they say it should, uh, any given hospital should not perform more than 15% of their births um, mm-hmm. should not be cesarean. So no more than 15% of the births that are done at any given hospital should be cesarean sections. They should be the vast majority should be vaginal births. I know that in our, obviously I cannot speak to the whole country, <laughs> um, but in, in our area, you know, in the, in the Boston area, in the New England area, at most, most hospitals are hovering more around 30%. Um, Some are a little bit lower, some are higher. Um, I know that in, you know, in, within the past few years, there have been a couple of hospitals that have been more like 40%, which is just absolutely outrageous. (laughs) Um, But that is a really good barometer. That's a really good metric um, to see. It's like, okay, almost, almost half or you know more than twice what the World Health or Health Organization says should be your cesarean rate is obviously they're not all one hundred they were not all one hundred percent necessary. That's just that's just not possible <laughs> statistically. That's not possible. <laughs> right. So I think that statistic speaks to the overuse of a lot of interventions for sure. Yeah, and that's gotten worse since the pandemic started, there was a a study or a survey or something that came out recently that showed that it went up an additional 33% for the US during the pandemic. And the people who were impacted the most, of course, were, you know, Hispanic and black families, I think it went up by like 74% for black families. And 40, I might not be remembering these numbers exactly. I think it was like 45% for Hispanic families too. Mm. So not only do you have these like overuse interventions, but there's definitely like systemic racism that's playing a part here because the black and Hispanic families are taking like the brunt of the negative effects of these interventions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you have a black body in the United States, you are four times more likely to die during childbirth. It's 2022. 
why is anybody dying in childbirth? You know, that's like, I feel like that's like little house on the prairie stuff, you know, it used to happen, you know, that happened a long time, but no, it still happens. And if you were black, you are four times more, it's four times more likely to happen to you than to your white counterpart. You know, if you were Asian, you're twice as likely to experience a a bad outcome such as Mm -hmm. like that. So the systemic racism is also very clear when you look at the numbers. Mm Yeah. And I mean, just look at Serena Williams and what happened to her. And she is like affluent and and famous and Mm -hmm. still, still she came very close to not making it through her birth Mm -hmm. because for the simple fact that nobody would listen to her and kept dismissing her concerns. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And and interventions are kind of like everywhere. Like I think all people are familiar with certain types of interventions. Like there's that joke that, you know, you take medications and then you take medications to offset the side effects of those medications. And then you take more medications to offset the side of the side effects of those medications. Same in lactation too. Like number one rule is always feed the baby. But once you introduce formula, that can lead to other problems that you're, you're then having to overcome that resulted in the introduction of that formula. And again, like really happy formula exists, not anti-formula at all. But I don't think that families have the opportunity to ask questions about the risks and drawbacks of introducing some of these interventions and how to offset them at all. Are epidurals needed? Yes, absolutely. And very appropriate for some people. Mm -hmm. But I feel like even when it is needed, families are not given full consent of Mm -hmm. what can happen if they choose yes to get that epidural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually doing a prenatal meeting with a doula client this afternoon, and I I was explaining to them that during pregnancy, during labor, during birth, you're not necessarily going to get the full picture. When when they offer or suggest a certain course of action, they're not going to give you all of tell you what all of your other options are or what the alternatives are, and it's not because they are like evil or malicious. You know, most OBs, I don't think they wake up in the morning, like petting their cat and being like, whose life can I ruin today? Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. think it's like that. You know, I think, yeah. I, but I think that they just, A, they don't have time. <laughs> and, you know, it's just sort of, it's a day at the office for them and they have boxes they need to check. And it's mm-hmm. not, it's not because they don't want you to have all this information. And it's not necessarily because they don't want you to know what your other options are. It's just, they're just sort of used to getting, they just kind of get in their routine and they tend not to see each person as an individual, which again, I can't get too mad at them for that either because they see hundreds of people <laughs> and, right. and they have how many patients going at a time. So, so, so again, it's not, you know, against anything against the providers themselves. It's just, again, it's the way the system is set up. The system is not set up. It's not set up to support the consumers, but it's really not set up for the providers either. I mean, they yeah. definitely have a lot of their own struggles. Right. Like I think most doctors get into the field because they want to help people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why most people become doctors. The money helps too, but, but but it's not like you said, they're not like, Oh, I wonder how many C-sections I can do today because I get paid. You know, it's not, I know some people think of that and some people are like, Oh, OBs are really wanting to do C-sections because they, they make more money doing C-sections. I don't think that that's true. For most doctors, I don't think they're just out to make more money and they don't really care about their patients, but they're working in a broken system. 
and they're just trying to do their best. And it's the same, you know, when I was in the hospital at lactation, I didn't feel like I was helping anyone. I felt like I was being my head against the wall all day Mm -hmm. because I was working in a broken system. Mm -hmm. And that's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's definitely true. Um, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think, I think that it's really important, you know, in, in having this conversation, or if you're, you're thinking about getting pregnant or you are pregnant to think about the way that you yourself view birth and the way that you think about birth, because birth in and of itself is not a medical event. It's just, it's just not Mm -hmm. birth in and of itself. It's not a medical event or a medical procedure. And one way that we can be reminded of this is I like to think of it as say like you need your gallbladder taken out um, or you need, you need a broken bone set. If you just decide not to go in, like if you decide not to show up for surgery or you take your time getting there, your gallbladder isn't just going to exit your body on its own. (laughs) But if, but if you decide not to go to the hospital or, you know, Um, or just take a little bit too long getting to the hospital, your baby might still exit your body. (laughs) And um, labor doesn't care where you are, (laughs) or if you're not in the place where you intend, or if you're not in in the place where you intend to give birth, it just happens. And that's because labor and birth is an involuntary bodily function, just like any other of the involuntary bodily functions that you know, that happened to us all. It's probably the most intense one, (laughs) Mm. Um, but it's not in and of itself a medical thing. Like, Mm -hmm. so if you're not in medical facility with all of their medical tools, your baby will still come out most likely, you know, because the process just works. This is really helpful thing, you know, to remember about, about birth is that it's a process that works more often than not. So if we take that, you know, that view of things, then compare it to the way the mainstream medical system views birth, those with medical training, so OBs and nurses and nurse midwives, they view birth through a medical lens. I mean, it only makes sense, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's their training. That's how they view it. And obviously, there are some exceptions. There are plenty of you know, OBs and nurses and nurse midwives who definitely you know, respect the physiological process of birth and believe that it works on its own and it doesn't need a lot of hands on it. But I would say maybe not a majority, but a lot of hospital-based providers see birth as something that's inherently dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that if it's not controlled, very closely monitored and controlled every step of the way by their medical tools, something's going to go wrong and the outcome is going to be bad. So it's important to you know, to sit with this and to think about where you yourself fall, you know, on that spectrum, mm-hmm. when you're deciding the, the type of care and who you're going to hire to be your provider, for example. Right. Yeah. And if you, you know, OBGYNs are surgeons, they are, they're trained surgeons. So that's the lens that they're looking at this through. They are trained to look for all the possibilities of what could go wrong. And again, it's like a broken system. A lot of OBGYNs will go through and not actually see a quote unquote natural birth throughout their entire training. And then you we, then you add in the aspect of like liability insurance costs, which I can only speak for like our area, but I've heard upwards of 200000 a year just for insurance that these doctors are having to pay. And they are told by the insurance companies, you will never get sued for the C-section you did. You'll only get sued for the C-section you didn't do. 
if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And yep, so even I, if, I, yes, and even if they mm -hmm. are trying to look at birth through, you know, uh, a non-emergent event, an event that doesn't need a lot of hands on, that's always in the back of their heads. How can it not be? Right. How can it not be? Mm -hmm. So, of right. course, they're going to like not want they're going to jump at any sign, even if it's minor. Like if they're if the baby's heart rate is dipping too much, you know, we need to do an internal monitor and then we need to do a C-section instead of like, let's just try changing positions. Let's try hydrating mom <laughs> like parent. Right. So it's a whole complicated situation where you can't pinpoint at one thing and say, this is the reason why we are overusing interventions in the US because it's a whole bunch of things just coming together and creating like the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. And the people who suffer are the parents. So yeah, especially now during the pandemic, like you and I were chatting about a little a little bit earlier. Um, we've basically been in a two year baby boom. Like there are just so many babies being born. It's just been pretty constant. <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. it's been a baby storm for, for, for two and a half years. So hospitals are just being pushed to their limits. They're mm -hmm. bursting at the seams. Their staff is burnt out and they're short staffed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They don't, they don't even have the staff and the mm -hmm. staff that they do have is getting completely burnt out. So I think that, you know, that's partially also why we've seen such an uptick in interventions and in inductions being pushed and being presented air traffic control maybe mm -hmm. <laughs> I, yeah I, 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 you know, I thought about it a lot like maybe that's why because they're hoping that by scheduling everybody then they can sort of you know control the flow but you know regardless you know regardless of the reason you know no the thing that I want you know birthing parents to you know to remember is that no external factor but you know so barring like a medical reason why you would need to you know intervene with your labor Nothing is a good enough reason to try and force your body to go into labor before it's actually ready. Mm -hmm. Because again, you, you're a lot more likely to find yourself in that cascade of interventions. Right. So let's clarify a little bit what it can look like. I know you talked about briefly that it usually starts with induction. I personally think it starts the moment you put on the hospital gown because putting on that hospital gown can change how, how the parent feels. And it can change the way the medical staff use them. Like you were talking about, like they see a hundred people a day. They're not going to remember. They see like a lot of people every day and every person they see is wearing the same exact gown and the same exact bed and the same, you know what I mean? So that in itself is like dehumanizing where they're no longer individuals. It's just another hospital gown in the hospital bed. And I will say that like, I have fallen for that too, as a hospital based IBCLC, like because I walk in and every parent, at least when I first started working, they're all wearing the same thing and they're all in the same hospital bed. Sometimes I'd see them after they were discharged in my private practice and I wouldn't remember seeing them until I saw their breasts. And then I would be like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember you now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when I realized that that was happening, I made it a point to write down every patient's first name. And I look before I walked into the room and I call them by their first name because you will be shocked how many parents can stay in the hospital after having their baby throughout labor and postpartum and never get called by their name by any of the medical staff. Usually the medical staff is like, Hey mom, Hey dad, you know, mm -hmm. so I oh, think yeah. it starts oh. there with the dehumanizing or, you know, at least not viewing people as individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. That's a really good point. Just putting on the hospital gown and it does something to you also kind of psychologically Right. When you put on the hospital gown, suddenly you're a patient. Mm -hmm. And you're maybe you're 
Yes, 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 that too. That yes. too. They're not they're not flattering. They're yeah. not the coverage isn't great. <laughs> um and 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 yeah, you know, you have on a hospital gown and suddenly you're like, oh, you feel like a patient. And then if you're immediately hooked up to an IV and now you have this IV IV pull with you, it's like, well, you know, you feel like a sick person. <laughs> you know, right. Because the- right. probably up to that point, if you've seen people, you know, as a birthing parent, every time you've seen someone wearing a hospital gown, they've been someone sick, most likely, right? Or someone needing actual medical care. So when you put on that gown, subconsciously, mm-hmm. that's ingrained in you. Like, oh, I, I'm sick. I need help. I need interventions, even though if you're not actively thinking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And maybe to some people listening, we sound like we're being really picky, mm-hmm. <laughs> like super like nitpicky. But the process of labor can change on a very little nitpicky thing. Labor and its progression is dependent on a whole cocktail of hormones and the way that we feel, the way that we feel mentally and emotionally, not just physically, all affect that. So mm-hmm. oxytocin, you know, the number one that, you know, that labor hormone, if we put on a Johnny and immediately feel like a sick person patient, then that's not going to make us feel particularly empowered or safe or mm-hmm. relaxed or loved. That's going to make us feel anxious and mm-hmm. a little stressed out and like, oh, so I'm a patient. Maybe I'm a sick person. Maybe something is going to go wrong. And that messes up that, you know, that good flow of all those feel good labor hormones that you're getting. So mm-hmm. even small <clears throat> things can definitely affect, affect the big picture. Right, right. Or you've been hearing horror stories about birth throughout your entire pregnancy because, you know, the second you want to, you announce that you're pregnant, everyone wants to share share their like horrible birthing story. So you're Mm. already going in with a certain sense of uncertainty and fear because we don't live in a culture where we grew up seeing people give birth, quote unquote, normally, if that Mm. makes sense. We're in other Mm. cultures where it's the norm to have home births with midwives unless you are high risk. You know, people, people see birth and they're, they're not as afraid of it, but in our country, people are afraid of birth because there's so much uncertainty. There's so much unknown. There's so many horror stories around it where the natural process in itself, like the ability for our bodies to get through it on our own is kind of lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That makes me sad. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm very, like, again, very grateful that we have those interventions, but it just makes me sad that you can grow up and get pregnant and have a baby without actually knowing what natural birth looks like or normal physiological birth looks like. Yeah. Kind of hate yeah. the term natural birth, not going to lie because. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a problematic. Term. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, like a, I, I don't know, like a standard birth, I guess. Like, yeah. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I agree. So let's say you're working with a family and they have to be induced. So that that starts off the cascade, right? So what does that lead to next in your experience? So one thing that I keep in mind with every family that I work with and that I remind them of is that, you know, just because the dominoes are all lined up, that doesn't mean that they all have to fall. You can stop them at any point, right? So just because like, you know, one domino falls, that can be it. You know, you can stop all the rest of them from falling over. So it's kind of the same with inductions, right? So yeah, you know, some people have medically necessary inductions of labor. So in those cases, we would talk about kind of the, the goal with everything is to kind of stop at the, is to get, reach the lowest effective amount, right? Of everything that we do. 
you know, once we get the body into labor, then, you know, how do, how do we manage that so that it's still manageable for the person who's going through it? Um, the goal is to not make labor come on so fast and so strong that they have no choice but to get an epidural or, you know, to continue on that path of, of more and more interventions. Because then also, if we bring labor on really fast and really hard, then we're also risking the baby getting stressed out, which opens up a whole other can of interventions <laughs> and, you know, possible, you know, necessitate different tools. So we just talk all along the way about each step of the process and what the alternatives are and, you know, just be really mindful of what each step is meant to do and then kind of weigh if the benefits of doing it would outweigh any potential risks for, you know, for continued, for more interventions after that. So we still try to keep it as, well, I guess, I guess natural isn't a terrible word in this case. <laughs> we try to keep it as, as natural, you know, as close to nature as possible, even if it's a medically induced labor. And the hope is that at some point the person's body will just take over anyway. And mm-hmm. You know, we won't need, I mean, ideally you wouldn't need anything you know, after a certain yeah. point. Once that process gets going, it just kind of becomes like a boulder rolling downhill, <laughs> you know, or just like a, like a train that you just, you know, just can't stop and just sort of keeps going on its own. I mean, that's, that's the ideal. It's just a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of TLC and a lot of communication um, mm-hmm. about what, you know, what's happening and what to do next and, you know, try to keep things as, as close to nature and as, you know, as manageable as possible. Yeah. And I think, you know, going through that process with families explaining, okay, like if, if you need to be induced, start with the least invasive method of induction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes you just need a little nudge and then you're in labor and you're good to go, but also being like informing the parents and, and helping them make educated decisions by saying like, okay, if you start Pitocin, you know, sometimes that can make the contractions way more intense. And then that can lead to the epidural, which can lead to like your blood pressure, you know, all this stuff, which can lead to internal monitoring and then C-section. So it's just having that understanding of of like how all these events are linked and how one can lead to the other and where, what can you do? You know, if you do need to be induced, what can you do to reduce your risk of having that other intervention follow? Yeah, that's kind of the goal. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are definitely a few things that you can do when you're preparing for your own labor, um, you know, when, when you're pregnant. You know, the first thing, again, is just to kind of keep in mind is to just like that process, the process of birth, like trust the process of birth. Like it does work even when it needs to be induced medically. It's your body is still going to go through all the same steps it would go through spontaneously. It's still, you still have to dilate. You still have to contract. Your body's still going to go through all of the, all of the things. So it's still the same process. It's just being, you know, maybe artificially set off, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. your body's still going to go through the same process. And it's a process that we can trust because bodies have been doing it for millennia. (laughs) Um, So just because medicine advances, that doesn't mean that the birth process itself, it hasn't changed really at all the way that our bodies work. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also really important to vet your provider. This is important. A good gynecologist is not necessarily a good OB. In fact, a lot of times they aren't, (laughs) quite honestly. Um, You know, a lot of people can complete the schooling and get the degree necessary to do, you know, to do pap smears and to do gynecological surgery and to prescribe birth control and, you know, to do all of those incredibly important things that, you know, we all, you know, see our gynecologist for. But that 
doesn't mean that they love birth and Mm -hmm. that they trust the process of birth and that they have a whole lot of faith in, you know, a woman's or any body's, a body's ability, you know, to, to birth. So it's important to kind of, you know, feel them out. You know, maybe you love your gynecologist that you see every year in the office for your checkup because, you know, they're friendly and they're super nice. That doesn't necessarily mean they'll be supportive of your birth wishes because that's a whole other thing. It's important to interview them, even if it's someone that you've been seeing for years, (laughs) for your yearly Mm -hmm. checkups, you're pregnant. You know, if you get pregnant or if you're thinking about getting pregnant, interview them, you know, ask them, ask them, you know, like the good questions to find out how they feel about birth and how they might align with your own, you know, wishes and desires for your birth. The birth hour podcast has some, um, their website has really good, a really good article and like some really, really good questions, you know, to ask your provider. I'm happy to do, I do prenatal just birth consultations, um, you know, separate from the full doula package, you know, I'll talk to, I'll talk to people and we'll just really get into it, get into the nitty gritty of like, what are your preferences? What's your vision? What do you want in relation to where you're going to birth in relation to what options you have available to you and just kind of hammer out a good birth plan and also really get to the heart of, you know, what, what the person really is hoping for and what they really want. Mm -hmm. But also you should hire a doula anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone should hire a doula. (laughs) Yeah. I was just having a conversation the other day with one of my doula BFFs and she said, it's crazy that like, if you're going to buy a house, you hire a realtor. That's super normal. That's just kind of what we do. You know, it's totally expected that if you're going to buy or sell a house, you hire a realtor because that whole process is extremely daunting and Mm -hmm. intimidating. And you kind of want an expert to guide you, you know, through the ins and outs of that process. It's just, it's mind blowing that when it comes to pregnancy and and labor and birth, we just sort of tell people, yeah, you're on your own. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we just sort of like say, you know, send them or, you know, someone goes to give birth with a partner who probably doesn't know any more than they do, (laughs) you know, probably knows even less. And, And also because, you know, researching on your own can also be daunting. You know, it's hard to know what sources are trustworthy. Um, having a doula on your team as early as possible is just really invaluable um, because mm-hmm. we can we can direct you to the really good, trustworthy information and sources and mm-hmm. articles and the most up-to-date evidence-based things having to do with pretty much everything pregnancy and birth related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the great thing about doulas too is, you know, doulas know the local providers for the most part, right? So if mm-hmm. you have a goal for your birth, like, okay, I want to avoid induction, for example, then you can ask your doula, like, who is the best provider for me? Or this is the provider I'm seeing. And this provider says that he or she will not induce me for, you know, ABC, because I'm overdue or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there are as as we call them bait and switch providers. And if you are working with a bait and switch provider who's telling you all the right things, but when it comes down to the actual birth, they suddenly change their tune. No, it it would be helpful knowing that that provider has a history of doing that going in. And that's when a doula can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, we know all the tea on all. That's right. That's right. And if I don't personally know about someone, I will ask the community, you know, like, Mm -hmm. Hey, who can give me, you know, who can give me all, give me the skinny on Dr. So-and-so, 
yeah. you know, at this or this hospital or, you know, just tell me everything you know. And so we know people, we know people who know people that can be really helpful because the bait and switch is hard. Because, you know, one thing that most people ask, especially people who have a doula, because we can sort of guide you as to what questions to ask your provider. Um, and one of the things that I encourage people to ask is to their providers, you know, what's your policy on induction? Do you think everybody should be induced at 39 weeks? Because some do, some practices, that's how they operate. Do you, you, would you want to induce me if I went past 40 weeks? Would you insist on inducing me if I went past 41 weeks? A lot of providers will say, you know, when you're 20 weeks pregnant, oh yeah, you can go to 42 weeks. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Go to 42 weeks. But then what, as you get closer to that point, as you're 38, 39, you know, 40 weeks, all of a sudden you're getting more ultrasounds and more non-stress tests and they will almost definitely find something that leads them to decide that an induction is recommended at no more than 41 weeks. Um, sometimes it's your baby's big. Sometimes it's your fluid is low. Those are the kind of the most common things. <laughs> um, yeah. See. yeah, it's it, it's tough. But again, having a doula on your side when you start, if, if those conversations happen, um, to go back to and say, you know, so Dr. So-and-so said this and I told them I would think about it. And, you know, do you have any information on this? You know, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on this? And again, you know, we won't give you our personal thoughts, but we'll say, hey, yeah, here's an article <laughs> right at, the at my fingertips because <laughs> I give it to a lot of people you know, yeah. about this particular thing. And then you can make your own decision. Um, mm. I, I, I always tell people as a doula, I have nothing invested in the choices that you make. It's your body. It's your birth. It's your family. And that doesn't affect me. What I am invested in is that you have all of the information so that you can make truly informed choices and give truly informed consent. You know, if after having received you know, all of the information and done the, you know, done the research and weighed all the options and all your alternatives and the pros and cons and just have those conversations... Whatever you decide after that, I have nothing invested in <laughs> and right. I will support you in whatever it is. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I think all doulas should practice like that. I know there are some doulas that are very much like epidurals are evil and all that stuff. But and it's the same with lactation. Like I say to families all the time, as long as you're happy with how you're feeding your baby and your baby's gaining well and healthy, I don't care what it looks like at the end mm -hmm. of the day. Like I don't care as long as you're happy and baby is healthy. That's all I care about. So if you tell me you want a formula feed, if you tell me you want a Sicily pump, great. Let's get started on that. And that's yeah. the type of support that you need in your corner. Yeah. If you tell me that because of your history, because of things in your past or be, and because of articles that you've read and because of, you know, the research that you've done, you've decided that you really only feel comfortable getting induced at 39 weeks and you want to get an epidural in the parking lot. Or you want to have a, you know, just have a go in for a plan C-section and not labor at all. If that choice is made thoughtfully, you know, after, after, you know, thought and conversation and, you know, research, then great. That's what matters to me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, at the, you know, at the end of the day. So what can families do when they are presented with, and, and of course, I'm speaking of non-emergent situations because emergent situations are entirely different. Mm -hmm. So this whole conversation that we've been having has been with non-emergency situations, but in a non-emergent situation, if the family is presented with, you know, an intervention that the providers would like to do, 
what are the steps that they should take in, in processing whether they would like to try that intervention or not? I know there's like, you know, ask for more time, ask for alternatives, ask about the risk of benefits. Can you kind of go through that process that you go through with the families you're working with when this happens during their birth? So the first thing that you need to do is create, like carve out the time, create the space to go through this thought process because they don't always offer that up. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, for example, if someone is in labor, the provider will come in and might say something like, oh, you know, so you've been at X dilation for, you know, this no- this number of hours and you, you haven't, you know, pro- progressed at all or you're not progressing the way that we think you should. How do you feel about breaking your water to see if that helps to speed things along? And then they'll just stand there and wait for you to respond. (laughs) And, you know, most people in that situation, especially if you're the person in labor, if you're the laboring person, you're, it's kind of a deer in the headlights moment. You know, it's like, I I, I don't know. Do do I want to do that? That doesn't sound right, but maybe we should because it will help speed things up. And, and meanwhile, they're just standing there looking at you waiting for your yes or no. So the first thing that you need to do in situations like that is ask for time. And if I'm there, if I'm present, when, you know, when situations like that happen, if I am with my, you know, my family in the room, I sometimes I will then kind of slide in and say, Hey, do you, do you guys you know, want a few minutes to talk about this and to think about it? I, again, it's not because the provider doesn't want you to have it. It just, I think doesn't really occur to them. <laughs> and also they, you know, they're kind of just moving down their list and they have other things that they need to get to. So, you know, as soon as someone says, Oh, can we have more time? Nobody's going to say no. You know, they're going to say, oh, yeah, 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 of course, I'll come back in a few minutes or just, you know, call me when you made a decision. 100%. And then they leave. Yeah. And then they leave the room and then it's a lot easier to have a conversation. Sometimes the conversation includes me. You know, sometimes it includes their doula. Sometimes they want me. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes people don't. Sometimes they just want to kind of just like look at each other and, you know, talk to each other. So that's why, you know, prenatally, I go over the, the tools. And I know that as a perinatal worker and as a, as a doula, you know, the brain acronym, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the things that you need to good to, to go through when you're presented with a choice is brain, B-R-A-I-N. So what, ask yourself, what are the benefits, if there are any, <laughs> to what is being suggested? So for example, breaking your water, probably maybe it will get labor to, you know, pick up back up again and get things to progress and move along. That's the hope. That's why they suggest that. Um, R is what are the risks to doing that? Are there, are there any risks? Are there any potential, you know, downfalls to doing this? Um, a for alternatives. So are there any alternatives? Do we have any other options? So like you mentioned before, I think like, do I just need to get hydrated? Do I just need to change position? <laughs> you know, do I need to maybe get up and move? And then I, for intuition, um, so like, what is your gut telling you? I always remind people, don't um, discredit your own intuition and your own gut. Um, even if you've never had a baby before, you, even this, if this is your first time in labor, your first time, it's still your body and you still know your body better than anybody else does. And you know your baby better than anyone else does. You've just spent nine months you know, getting to know this little person and having this, this bond with this person, you'll know, you know, a lot of, a lot of times you'll just, you'll know kind of instinctively what's a good idea and what isn't. And then N is what happens is either 
can either be need more time. So, okay, can we just wait a little bit longer or do nothing? Like what happens if we just don't don't do anything? Those two things kind of go hand in hand, but yeah, just, you know, things when you're going through a thought process, trying to make a decision, that's sort of a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that. And I love that it's an acronym so you can remember it easier, but And that's the nice part about, about having a doula is when you're going through, okay, what are the benefits? What are the risks? The provider might not have explained that at all. Or even, and I have even seen providers say, oh, there's no risk. And I'm like, there's risk to everything, everything, everything. Getting out of bed in the morning, we might stub our toe. There's a risk to everything. So please don't say there's no risk. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, like you said, the, the providers have a lot to do sometimes you know, there's multiple, multiple parents in labor. So they might not have the time to sit and explain all the benefits and the rest, but having a doula who's knowledgeable about that can help you make the decision that's right for your family. Right. Yeah. I mean, just because your provider may not have the time or may not think it's necessary to inform you of what all your options are, or go through what all the benefits and risks are, and you know, kind of go through all of that with you, just because they don't have the time or maybe the inclination to sit down and do that with you, it does not mean that you don't need it mm-hmm. and that you don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to give true informed consent, I think you, 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 really, you really need to kind of take that time and take that space, you know, in order to really know like what you're, you know, what you're agreeing to and, to know that you've to feel confident in the choices that you make because mm-hmm. that's what stays with you. Um, I found, well, I mean, it's, well, it's not just me. It's a lot of people have, have said it. I mean, that the way, you know, the way that a person forgets pretty quickly, <laughs> you know, what labor feels like, um, which I think is, it's a wonderful protective mechanism that's been, you know, that's hardwired into us to preserve our psyches and also the human race, I think, because <laughs> we remembered every detail of what it feels like to labor. We're, like, we're never doing that again. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But that, that really does fade pretty quickly. I've been with people who are you know, in the throes of labor. They say, I, why do people do this more than once? I'm never doing this again. I'm one and done. You know? And then sometimes within an hour post birth, they're like, okay, maybe one more. Yeah. Like, or they say, or they say, I'm already starting to forget mm-hmm. because you do. Yeah. That fades. The physical sensations fade pretty quickly, but the thing that stays with you is the way that you felt throughout mm-hmm. the process, the okay. way that you're treated, the way that you were made to feel. So if you felt, you know, scared or anxious or like your, this experience was just, a series of things that are being done to you that will stay with you and that will come back. That will continue to come back. And that's what you'll remember. If you feel like you were in control of the things that happened, that you were fully informed, that you were empowered, that you were driving that bus, then that will also stay with you. So it's just a matter of, you know, how are you going to look back on that day? And that's what I have in mind with, with every family that I'm with. Like, how are they going to look back on this? And how is this going to impact the way they look back on this? Um, and the way that, you know, they think about this experience going forward. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I, I agree with my first, you know, I had a relatively easy birth compared to others. It, I think it for me, it was more how I felt with how I was being treated and spoken to during my mm-hmm. birth, where I just felt like any concerns that I had were dismissed. And even though it was a quote unquote, good birth, 
especially for a first time mom, I didn't feel good about it because I felt like every time I had a concern about an intervention or whatever, and I would bring it up, it was just dismissed. And I didn't know how to advocate for myself because I was very young when I had my first child. And I had even asked my cousin who had just had a baby. I was just like, oh, you know, should I take a childbirth class? And I remember she saying, no, you're just, just get the epidural. You don't need to take a class. So I came in completely blindsided about what birth was like and what it was supposed Mm -hmm. to And it's still like I had a good birth, but it was just, I remember the nurses and the doctors just being very dismissive. I don't know if it was because I was young. Again, it's like those little things, like they kept asking me if my mom knew I was there. Um, I I am younger, but I am an adult. um, (laughs) Right. And like, why does she need to be here for this baby to come out of my body? Like. And, and as much, and I did love my OB. I still love her. I still respect her, but she did give me an episiotomy without saying anything to me, like without explaining that she, like, I didn't know that she gave me one until after when she was sewing me up and I was like, oh, I tore. And she's like, oh no, I gave you an episiotomy. And even, even in my ignorant state at that time where I knew nothing about birth and I was very young, I do remember thinking, huh, well, you didn't tell me that you just did it. And I remember feeling very unsettled about that because I felt like it was a loss of control for me. Like I had no say over what was going on in my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I chose home birth really <laughs> the next time. Yeah. 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 And also, I mean, the process of labor and birth involves a fair amount of surrender as it is. <laughs> this is something that also, you know, it might for some people, it takes some some work to come to terms with the fact that you're not going to have full control over what's happening in your body because your body is just doing things on its own. Mm. Um, it's a, as we said, it's a very involuntary process um, that we can't, we can't fully control once it gets going. So I feel like that's enough. <laughs> that's enough loss of control that we shouldn't have to worry about people around us, you know, external factors taking away more of our own agency and control over what's happening with our body. That's, that shouldn't really be a thing. Mm-hmm. Agree. Well, this was such an, a, a great and important conversation. I am so grateful that you're willing to talk to me today about the cascade of interventions, because like you said, like with the pandemic and everything, especially, you know, the childbirth classes were shut down for a long time. So parents were kind of getting no education. Where can families find you if they want to learn more about you and reach out to you um so i have a website it's estherbrookbirth.com and i'm also on facebook just under meryl estherbrook that's those are probably the easiest ways <laughs> okay and i'll put the links to those in the show notes great well thank you so much meryl it was really nice talking to you thank you thank you so much Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.